February 12, 2015, in Melbourne, Australia. And we're going to be looking at the amazing, astonishing, wonderful, incredible Gaudiya Vaishnav understanding of sexual desire based on Srila Prabhupada's teachings and that of the Pastacharyas and the Shastra. And we're going to be looking at four main areas. What is the original spiritual bliss? How does our love turn into lust? How do we turn lust back into love? And then how do we deal with the remaining lust while we're still turning it back into love? 
First, we're going to look at the original spiritual bliss. This is called Adi Rasa. And I think one of the most special, amazing, and unique aspects of our Gaudiya Vaishnava philosophy is that we say that sexuality, sex desire, sex pleasure, it's coming from the spiritual world. It's not something that's unreal. It's not just some, something that's illusory or something that's evil. It has its basis in reality. This is, of course, from Bhagavatam 111. And this particular verse in purport is quite important. I would uh, suggest that those of you who are really interested in exploring this topic uh, take some time to read over this whole purport. We're going to be quoting just from parts of it. This is Majulila 8, 138. This was spoken by Ramananda Roy to Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Uh, that the original Cupid, the original uh, instigator of romantic desires is none other but the Lord himself. And of course these are names of the Lord from the Kama Gayatri Mantra. And this is from that purport. Where Prabhupada says... In the material world, if one is sexually inclined and enjoys sex life, he enjoys something temporary. His enjoyment vanishes after a few moments. However, in the spiritual world, the same enjoyment may be there, but it never vanishes. It is continuously enjoyed. So we're talking about a pleasure that goes on all the time. As Krishna says in the sixth chapter of Bhagavad Gita, boundless transcendental happiness. And Prabhupada says, not only does it go on continually, it appears to be newer and newer, whereas here it becomes distasteful after a few moments. Uh, So here one becomes bored, one becomes disgusted. But this spiritual enjoyment is boundless, and it keeps getting newer and fresher. And Prabhupada says, there's no material inebriety in Krishna's desires. And you may say, okay, that's Krishna, Uh, But the fact is that both Krishna and the jivas desire pleasure. We are of the same nature as that of God. And therefore, therefore it's not just a matter of Krishna being interested in pleasure, but all of us are anandamaya biyasat. So it's not only that Krishna has these desires, we, the soul, and all liberated souls, have desire for this pleasure. And here Prabhupada's quoting Anandamaya Biasat. We are, we are pleasure-seeking beings. Something like in the military, there's heat-seeking missiles. Yes, you've heard of that? Right, they hone in on an engine. So we're pleasure-seeking beings. We're always looking, where is their happiness? Where is their happiness? And this is from the purport to the next verse, 139. Uh, that we have the same kind of desires as Krishna has. That's because we, we have the same nature of Krishna in a minute degree, but we have these same desires as Krishna has for enjoyment. Now, this next purport is really what started me on this seminar. I was asked many, many years ago, uh, just during an ordinary morning Bhagavatam class, to give class on this purport. And afterwards, the devotees came up to me. This was in Auckland. 
and they said, would you please make this into a seminar? So I developed it into a seminar, and I taught it to a meeting of the Pandavasena to our youth in Italy, and there were some very senior devotees there, and they said, you really should teach this widely. It's something that everyone needs to hear, and gradually I made this whole multimedia presentation. So you can read here in this purport the fact that these sexual feelings, the original spiritual sexual feelings, they're there in the spiritual body. This means that they're part of the soul. So this desire for pleasure, this, this feelings in the, in, the, in the form are part of the soul. They're part of our eternal spiritual nature. Therefore, they say that we become desireless. No, that is not possible. How can I, if I become desireless, I become dead. Uh, so long I am living entity, I must desire. I cannot check it. This is one of the most bedrock foundational principles of our Gaudiya Vaishnava philosophy. That live to be alive means to have desire. Okay? And it is because this desire for pleasure is part of the jiva that it cannot be killed. There's no question of killing it. There's no question of just repressing it and suppressing it. It's part of the soul. This is not a desire that's coming from the material body or the material mind or the material nature or illusion. It's something that is part of the soul. And here Srila Prabhupada is saying this in the teachings of Lord Chaitanya. And here in the teachings of Lord Chaitanya, he's actually referring to the same uh, verse and purport that's in the Majalila chapter 8. And he's saying that it's there. Sexuality, sexual desire, sexual pleasure, it's there in the soul. It's there in spiritual life. The problem is it's coming out in a strange way through the material body. But the material body is not the cause of it. The material body, material mind is distorting it. And it's distorting it into something that's nasty and troublesome. But the original urge is something that's part of the spirit. The sex feeling of uh, the human society is original. It is not unnatural because the same sex feeling is there in the original personality of Godhead. The pleasure potency is uh, Srimati Radharani. Actually, the attraction of sex or uh, loving affairs on the basis of uh, sex feeling is the original feature of the Supreme Personality of Godhead. And we, the conditioned souls, being the part and parcel of the Supreme, we have got such feelings. But they are in a perverted, minute condition. Yes, so Srila Prabhupada is making the same point, the Shastra is making the same point over and over again. These feelings are part of the soul, they're original, they're originally spiritual, but in our conditioned state, they're coming out in a twisted form. And the main thing to understand from this is that therefore they cannot be killed. If we think that spirituality means to kill or destroy or suppress or repress these feelings, what will happen? So there's three possibilities of what will happen if we go for killing them. 
Uh, one possibility is anger. Anger is called Kam Anujena, the younger brother of lust. And as we were talking about this morning, anger is also a rasa. It's also a taste. There's a kind of pleasure in anger. And people who try to repress their sexuality and their sexual feelings, often instead they end up enjoying anger. And if you've ever met somebody in a spiritual process, including in this process, who's very angry a lot, criticizing people, they get disturbed by things very easily, they always have something that's bothering them, something they're angry about. And often they're uh, justifying their anger in the name of something spiritual. You know, I'm, I'm angry that this instruction of Prabhupada isn't being followed, or I'm angry these devotees aren't behaving properly, or something like that. Uh, but often it's simply the younger brother of lust. Another result of trying to kill sexuality, sexual desires, is having a hard heart. So to do some severe austerity, just it simply makes your heart hard. And with a hard heart, bhakti is impossible. We just try to stop all feelings. And again, I've, I've met devotees who do this to themselves. They just try to stop their feelings and they just become like a stone. Because desire and feeling is a symptom of life. If you try to stop it, then you act like a stone. Of course, the problem is that it's very difficult to stay like a stone. <laughs> it's very difficult to maintain a stone-like uh, life. So these people will often vacillate between stone and anger, stone and anger, stone and anger, stone and anger, which is called bogatiaga. Renouncing, enjoying, renouncing, enjoying, but often what they're trying to enjoy is anger. And then... Uh, what also can happen is fall down. So a person is repressing, repressing, repressing. They're being stone-hearted. They're being angry. They're repressing, repressing. And then they have some real big mess up. They have some big, embarrassing, uh, scandalous mess up. And this is the result of repression or suppression. It comes out in some way. Either it makes one hard-hearted or it comes out in some a not very nice way. So what is this Adi Rasa? This is called the Ladini Potency, which of course is personified uh, by Srimati Radharani and all the damsels of Raja, the queens of Dwarka, and so forth. And this is nicely explained in the Brahma Samhita. So Radharani is the personification of this pleasure potency. Everything spiritual is, is a person. Even emotions are all personal. And Radharani is the personification of this pleasure potency. You can say, okay, I, I get that, but... We're saying that not only does Krishna have these desires, but also the jiva has these desires. So Radharani is the pleasure potency for Krishna. How did the jivas experience pleasure? So this is explained very nicely, that the pleasure that the pure devotees experience is also coming from 
Krishna's pleasure potency. The Ladini energy gives Krishna pleasure and nourishes the devotees of Krishna. So anyone who's connected with Krishna, anyone who's pure in love for Krishna, they're also getting this pleasure from the Ladini Shakti. Well, how exactly does that work? What's the process? And here's the crucial point. That the devotees experience this pleasure by seeing Krishna pleased. Our our natural function is to enjoy vicariously. Uh, Just like the examples given that the hand, the eyes, enjoys when the stomach is fed. The leaves of the tree enjoy when the root is fed. So the way we jivas are designed is that when we are, of course, we are, are connected with Krishna, when we are experiencing our connection with Krishna and Krishna's please, then we also feel that same pleasure. Actually, Krishna is always feeling that pleasure, and we are always connected with him. But when we choose to think that we are not connected with him, then we don't experience that pleasure. And here Prabhupada is saying that this is our, the aim of our Krishna consciousness movement, to be associated in this pleasure dance of Radha and Krishna. That is our aim. That is our goal of this Hare Krishna movement. As soon as we try to please Krishna in any way, whether by offering Krishna food, whether by singing in the kirtan, as soon as we are trying to please Krishna, then we will also experience this pleasure potency. Now let's think for a minute about what does it mean to please Krishna. What does it mean to please Krishna? Krishna has his pleasure potency. So when you say you want to please Krishna, what are you doing? You're bringing Krishna together with his pleasure potency. Can you all understand the logic of that? This thing never stays up. Can you all understand the logic of that? Yes? When we say, I'm going to please Krishna, what that translates to is I'm going to take Krishna and his energy of pleasure and I'm going to bring them together. And when the jivas do this, they experience this adi rasa. When the jivas serve to bring Krishna together with his pleasure energy, the jivas experience this adi rasa. Now we have some experience of that in this world, a little bit. You know, if we go to the wedding of a friend, we also feel happy. Everybody's had that kind of experience. Or, you, you know, somebody's looking for a nice uh, partner and you introduce them to someone and it works out and they fall in love, then you also feel happy. So we have some, some little, a little idea of this, this principle. But the way ultimate reality works is when the jiva unites Krishna and his pleasure potency, the jiva experiences the adiras. Here's a nice song by Bhakti Vinod Thakur, that the idea is to unite Radha and Krishna. This is the goal of the jiva. Radha Krishna Manobala Oh, 
that is true for any of the Lord's manifestations. It's also true for Lakshmi and Narayan. And Prabhupada's often saying, engage Lakshmi in the service of Narayan and become happy. Of course, it is also true for Sita and Ram. Right? So this principle applies to all of the rasas. This, this principle doesn't just apply to the gopis or just apply to the queens of Dwarka. It's not that the only way to experience the adirasa is to become one of Krishna's gopis and relate with him directly. But everyone in the spiritual world is uniting the Lord in his pleasure energy. And therefore, they're all feeling this happiness. Just like Hanuman. Right? So Hanuman, his whole purpose was to unite Sita and Ram. Yes? Although Hanuman's in Dasyaras, his happiness is in uniting Sita and Ram. Now that's true not only with Radha Krishna and Lakshmi Narayan and Sitaram, it's even true in the vibration of Omkara. Whereas we were explaining the other day, the A is the masculine principle, Krishna, Rama, Narayana, the U is the feminine principle, and the Anushwar is the Jiva that is bringing together Krishna and his pleasure energy. And of course, that's what we're doing when we're chanting Hare Krishna. Right? When we're chanting Hare Krishna, Krishna and this pleasure energy are, are dancing on our tongue. We're, we're providing the, the place... We're providing the, the facility to bring Krishna and his pleasure energy together. Okay. Now, the sad story. How does this get messed up? So the problem is, instead of wanting to be Hanuman and uniting Ram and Sita, we decide we want to be Ravana and we want to kidnap Sita and take her for ourselves. That's the difference between the spiritual adiras and material lust. Material lust is, oh, I'm getting pleasure from this adiras. I'm getting pleasure from this spiritual potency. I'm getting pleasure from the Ladini Shakti by uniting Krishna and his Shakti well, why do I have to get pleasure like that? <laughs> Let me just take the Ladini Shakti for myself. Then it becomes lust. The same desire to have that same enjoyment with the Ladini, through the vehicle of the Ladini Shakti, then becomes lust. 
And then it becomes some shackles. It becomes a, a, a bondage where we become the slaves of our bodily senses, the slaves of our mind, and we become entangled in so many relationships. And going back to teachings of Lord Chaitanya, right, the material cupid increases the attraction of the external flesh and body, but the spiritual cupid increases the attraction the super soul exerts upon the individual soul. Actually, lust and the sex urge are there in spiritual life, but when the spirit soul is embodied in material elements, that spiritual urge is expressed through the material body and is therefore pervertedly reflected. Now, it's not the fault of the body. (laughs) It's that because we have these twisted desires to try to enjoy the Ladini potency separately from Krishna, therefore we get a material body. It's not, it's not that we don't have those desires and a material body is forced on us, which then twists the desire. Because we, twist, we choose to twist the desire. Therefore, we get a material body. The material body is the gross form of our mental desires, which is very nicely explained here in the 15th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita. The senses we get are grouped around the mind. So depending on our mentality, we get a particular body. If you have a mentality, if a living entity has a mentality to enjoy the Ladini potency separately from Krishna, then the living entity gets a material body. And depending on exactly how one wants to enjoy, one gets a various type of body. You, know, you might get the body of a great demigod, you might get the body of a human being, or an ant, or a dolphin, or a dog, or, or a tree, or something like that. But all of the The mind is the basis. Just like the clothes that we're wearing fits upon our gross body, so our gross body fits around the mind. This body that we have in this life is is an expression, a gross expression of our desires. Of course, if you think about it, one will realize that we must not have very nice desires. Yes? (laughs) Because this body isn't particularly nice. Correct? Yes? The body is a little embarrassing. Am I correct? Okay. So that, then the body is a, it's a gross manifestation. It's a manifestation on the gross plane of our, our, of our desires. Pretty sad. Now, the problem is that sometimes it's hard for us to really tell. We, we, we've mixed up. We think that the material desire is very spiritual. Generally, materialists think like that. They think their romantic desires or sexual desires are love. And that it's really spiritual. Now, the reason for this is really interesting. So, you know, Krishna has a son named Prajumna. You all know this story? And Krishna's son Prajumna is the material Cupid. Krishna is the spiritual Cupid. And Krishna's son Prajumna is the material Cupid. And Prajumna was kidnapped when he was a baby from Rukmini, and then he came back as a grown man with his wife, Rati. Rati means uh, a great attachment. And when the ladies of the palace, the step, his stepmothers, when they saw Prajumna, they thought, oh, it's Krishna. They, they confused him. They confused the material Cupid with the spiritual Cupid. So even his stepmothers, they couldn't discern. It took them a while to figure out 
that the material Cupid and the spiritual Cupid were two different persons. So we often get confused in this way, yes? We think that our our material romantic feelings are very, very high and very elevated and very selfless, when in fact that they are not. All right, so that's the sad story. Now we're going to see what do we do about this? How do we take this lust and turn it back into love? We already realize we can't kill it, yes? Can we kill it? No, we can't kill it. I'm sure some of us have tried. It <laughs> doesn't work. So we can't kill it. And now how, what do we do? Our bhakti yoga process is how we turn this lust back into love. So what is the real cure? Here Srila Prabhupada is explaining in the fourth canto, chapter 22, that our desire for sense enjoyment is the cause of our fall down and instead we turn our desires to the loving service of the Lord. Now this sounds like a very simple point, but the key word here is desires. Desires have some energy to them. They have some force to them. Desires are full of emotion. A desire is not an intellectual thing. A desire is not a belief. A desire is not adherence to a particular dogma. Desire is not adherence to a particular set of rituals and dogma and a religion. A desire is a very intense feeling made up of many emotions. So our cure to turn this lust back into love is to cultivate intense emotional desires to please Krishna. And that is what bhakti yoga means. Devotional service, not just service, and not just devotion either, but devotional service. Not just, oh, I love you, Krishna, but I don't do anything for you. And not, I do things for you, but I don't love you. Hmm? Right? You know, the wife is cooking, and you can hire a servant to cook. But the servant doesn't have devotion. The servant is just paid. But if the wife says, I have devotion, but I'm not going to do anything, that's also useless. You follow? So we don't want to be just uh, official, doing something officially without any emotion for Krishna. And nor do we just want to have some kind of sentimental emotion and not have it exhibited in action. But the key is to really change our desires, to really cultivate our desires. Everything that we're doing, all of the behaviors that we're doing, our chanting of the Hare Krishna mantra on bees, our chanting in the kirtan, our worshiping the deity, our taking prasadam, everything we're doing is meant to spark this, this seminar tonight. It's meant to spark our desire. Yes, I want Krishna. And it's meant to come to such a desire that is compared to greed. Hmm? which is the hardest of the vices to control. This intense, intense desire to please Krishna. Kama Krishna Karmarpane. At the present moment we are desiring how to become happy in this material world. This is kama. So this brain taxation, if you engage in Krishna's service, how to spread Krishna consciousness, how to convince people about Krishna, how to take them to the Krishna's uh, desire, Sarvadharman Parittari. Now one reason I picked this particular quote is, look at this Sanskrit, Kama Krishna 
Kamarpane, Kama Krishna. This word Kama generally means lust. But to have this lust for Krishna, to have this desire for Krishna. And Srila Prabhupada's giving here such a practical example. That normally we're taxing our brains. How can I be happy in the world? How, where can I invest my money so I'll make a, a fortune? How can I find the right partner? How can I get my children in the best schools? What improvements can I make to my home? How can I buy a better car? You know, we're, we're always taxing our brains like this. How can I get along better with my boss and so forth and so on? And to take that same energy, Prabhupada says, that same brain taxation and use it, how can I please Krishna? How can I please Krishna? How can I help spread this Krishna consciousness movement? One of the most wonderful things about being part of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's movement, which is a preaching movement, is there's always more to do than we can possibly do. There's seven billion people on the planet. And most of them are not even thinking about God at all. What to speak about thinking about Krishna in the spiritual world. So it gives us a lot, of, a, a lot to give some brain taxation to. If each of us started our own, if everybody in this room started their own project tomorrow to spread Krishna consciousness, it wouldn't be enough. So how much is there to do that we can absorb our mind in with desire, with emotion? Hmm? And we become absorbed in the real. Mam Anusmaram Yujachau. While you fight, Krishna said, you think of me. Not that we only think of Krishna for some time during the day when we're meditating, when we're, but all the time, in all of our activities. And maya shaktamana, shakta means with attachment. Maya shaktamana parta. My dear parta, always think of me, not just think of me in an intellectual way, in a detached way, but in an attached way. With attachment. Attachment again means that there's some desire, there's some emotion. We are attached to people and things and circumstances that we are convinced will meet our needs. So we become attached to Krishna. Just like when Krishna was enveloped in the coils of Kaliya, the residents of Vrindavan were going unconscious because it says that they had invested everything in Krishna. You know, we, we become distressed when our investments are threatened, yes? Whatever we've invested our concepts of happiness in, our family, our community, our job, our home, our car, our country, and so forth, when these things are threatened, then we get full of emotion because we're invested in them. We don't become emotional when things we're not invested in them in, in have problems, correct? If something I have no, I'm not investing my desire in has a problem, it doesn't affect me. So we should invest everything in Krishna. And we need to get the real experience. The real experience. As Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati said, don't lick the outside of the jar of honey. The honey is inside. It's very, very possible to be part of the Hare Krishna movement and simply be doing things externally. Taking up this practice as some sort of cultural thing or some sort of religious thing or some sort of ritual or, you know, it's my parents' religion and therefore I do it or something like that. Or it's some cool spiritual thing. But really get a real spiritual experience. This means going deep into the practices. All right, so you can hear all this. This is the real cure. 
We turn our desires and our emotions to please Krishna. We tax our brain as to how to preach Krishna consciousness. We get this real experience. We get attached to Krishna. But you can say, oh, it's gradual. I've been trying this for so long, and it's still, all right, all right, I have it somewhat, but, you know, it's not all the way there. What do I do? We were talking about this, about mixed bhakti and pure bhakti, right? And the pure bhakti process is you start off with all these material desires and then you have a little bit of spiritual desires and you gradually are transforming your material desires into spiritual. But the problem is you still have all this untransformed stuff. Hmm? What do we do with it? So on this path... Right? We're taking our lust and we're gradually transforming it back into love. And this, again, is very nicely explained in Madhurya Kanambani by Vishnu Chakravati Thakur. He says, we start off with absolute lust and a little trace of love and we gradually increase the love and decrease the lust. Basically, what you're doing is you're gradually turning the lust back into love. You think of it as something that you're washing Right, if you scrub the pot, who here has scrubbed the dirty pot? Who has scrubbed the dirty pot? Okay. So if it, it, sometimes you, it's a really dirty pot. You ever scrubbed a really dirty pot? Oh, yeah, I did that once. I was, I was heating up some milk on the stove, and a friend of mine knocked on the door with an emergency, and I forgot that I was heating up milk on the stove. And I ran out to help with the emergency, and when I came back, my whole apartment was filled with smoke. Thankfully, it wasn't a fire. And my pot was a mess. Now, if I were intelligent, I probably would have just thrown the pot away. But I really liked that pot. (laughs) I don't even have it anymore, but I had it probably for about 30 years. I really, really liked that pot, and I decided I was going to clean it. And I had to do it a little bit every day. I couldn't just clean it in one day. It was way too dirty. I think it took me about a month. You know, and so you're scrubbing and scrubbing, and, and, and after a while, there's little bits of silver that show through. Yeah? At first, it's just, you know, black. And you're scrubbing and scrubbing, and little bits of silver show through, and gradually, gradually, gradually more. So that's kind of what's happening. You know, we're scrubbing our heart, and at first, it seems like it's completely hopeless, but you can't throw it out. We're eternal. That doesn't work. So, you know, you're just scrubbing and scrubbing, and, and then some little bits of silver manifest. But what do you do with all the, the stuff that hasn't been transformed yet? What do you do with that? Can you kill it? You don't sound very convinced. Can you kill it? No. no. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do? This, this is the big question that nobody wants to talk about in the Hare Krishna movement. I, I just, frankly... Actually, the first couple times I, I taught this, it was really hard. I was thinking today, I've taught it enough times now, it's okay, I can, I can do it. But I remember when I taught this at New Vrindavan, we had a packed room, and it was, the room was really dark. Nobody could see me at all, and I was like, yes, thank you. <laughs> and so... This is, it's definitely gotten a little, a little easier for me. But this, this is our, our big secret. Ha, 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 yeah. <laughs> that we say you can turn your lust back into love with the process of Krishna consciousness, and it works, and we feel it working. 
We feel that it is working, we experience that it's working, but it doesn't generally work instantaneously. And so we have a part of us that's starting to love Krishna, and then we have a part of us that still wants to kidnap Sita and run off with her for ourselves. So what do we do? So this is the wonderful instruction of Narada Muni. There's not a thing when applied therapeutically cure a disease which is caused by that very same thing. This is the essence of Krishna consciousness movement. The milk is the cause of your dysentery, but the same milk, when it is medically treated, can cure it. Hmm? Yes, it is homeopathy, isn't it? Yes, it is definitely homeopathy. Uh, Prabhupada also says some nice things directly about homeopathy, but uh, let's not go there tonight. <laughs> so let's look at this first of all in a general way. We're going to look at this in a, in a general way. How do we use, how do we use, what do we do with the perverted sexual energy while we're transforming it into its original form? So let's look at it first in general, then we're going to look at the two specific paths. Now, this aspect of turning lust into love, I find astonishing. Astonishing, amazing. You know, we're talking about in Bhagavatam class in the morning. I think most of you here aren't also here in the mornings. But we're talking in class in the morning about whether God is good or evil. Why are we suffering in this world? Are we suffering in this world because there's a mean God? <laughs> are we suffering, or are we suffering due to our own mistakes? And one of the evidences that God is kind is that material sexuality is full of pleasure. That's pretty amazing. When you consider that our material sexuality is our attempt to steal Sita away from Ram and enjoy her ourselves, either as our wife or girlfriend or if we're in a female form in our own body, it's amazing that Krishna arranges for that to be a pleasurable experience. If I took your opulences and wanted to enjoy them separately from you, would you want me to enjoy them? If I stole your money, would you want me to enjoy that money? You'd want that money to bring me suffering, wouldn't you? You'd be like, I hope that thief trips over his feet, you know? <laughs> I hope that money brings him nothing but pain. <laughs> And, and we're trying to steal Krishna's Ladini potency and enjoy it ourselves, independently of Krishna. We're trying to sneak off in the corner. <laughs> I got it myself. <laughs> and Krishna's like, enjoy it. That's amazing. Krishna's saying, all right, you can also find pleasure in it. That this is someone who's not envious. This means that Krishna has no envy. But Krishna is not only very kind, he's also very smart. Because he knows that our trying to enjoy the Ladini potency that way is not going to fully satisfy us. That even if he imbues it with his own pleasure, it's, it's just not how we're designed to function. It's not reality. We're designed to function in harmony. We're not designed to function in disharmony. 
Would we want reality to be disharmonious and self-centered? Is that what we would want truth to be? Everybody for themselves? Everybody grabbing pleasure for themselves? Hmm? So although Krishna puts some pleasure there, he also connects it with reproduction. Now, I don't know if you all ever wondered about this, but I'm kind of a strange person. I wonder about all kinds of things. I'm an extremely curious person. And so I've often wondered, why does reproduction happen through sex? I mean, it doesn't have to. Vishwamrita Muni had babies grow out of trees. Krishna could allow for living entities to get their bodies in so many ways. Why did he link those two things? I mean, they're not spirit in the spiritual world, there's no birth, yes? So, although everyone in the spiritual world is, is experiencing the pleasure of this adirasa, everyone, by uniting Radha Krishna, Sita Ram, Lakshmi Narayan, everyone is experiencing this adirasa, it doesn't result in anything called birth. So, why here does it? Ha! Why did Krishna do that? Did you ever wonder about that? Well, as soon as Krishna did that, that meant that sex was linked with responsibility. Whatever you do with it, it's linked with responsibility. All of a sudden, you have to take responsibility. As soon as you keep the biological link between sex and children, immediately there's responsibility. Whether you're having sex or whether you're celibate, you have to take responsibility. Now, of course, modern society does everything they can to break this link. This is the whole thrust of modern society, the whole goal of modern society. Break this link. Do it through contraception, through abortion, through non-procreative relationships. Right? Don't get married till you're 35. First mess around, and then when you're 35, maybe you still have enough fertility to have one kid, maybe. You know, this is the whole mood in modern society. Separate sex and reproduction. Separate sex and procreation. If you think about that word procreation, it's an interesting English word. Because as soon as there's children, there must be sacrifice. Is it possible to be a parent without sacrifice? No way. Now, not only is there a sacrifice for the children, but there becomes a sacrifice to the partner also. Children do much better when they're raised by their natural biological mother and father. We consider that the ideal situation. I mean, if you can't have the ideal, better you have foster parents or adoptive parents. But ideally, children are raised by their biological parents, which means that sex then becomes performed in marriage. So you have to make a sacrifice to your wife, to your husband, and to your children. And there's a very interesting thing about sacrifice. Here Prabhupada's saying there's sacrifice either in celibacy or in householder life. If you want to find God, where do you look? God is everywhere. Sarva Gatam Brahma. Gatam place, Sarva all Brahma means God. God is everywhere. Where will you find him? It's hard to find somebody who's everywhere. Nitya Yagye Pratistitam. 
Stita means a place. We have the English word stay, stable, from stitam. Nitya, always, yagye, in sacrifice. If you want to find God, look in acts of sacrifice. Look in acts of giving. Because material lust is predicated on the concept of taking. Spiritual love is giving. Spiritual love, oh, I'm giving Radha and Krishna. I'm giving Lakshmi Narayan. I'm giving Sitaram. And lust is, let me take Sita for myself. Let me take Radha for myself. Let me take Lakshmi for myself. So although Krishna allows that to be pleasurable, even materially, he says, okay, but let me imbue it with giving. Let me mix even the material sex with giving. You have to give to your partner. You have to take care of your partner. You have to make a commitment in marriage. You have to give to your children. You're giving, you're giving, you're giving. And so even materialistic, atheistic people end up having to do some sacrifice. Isn't that fascinating? If you respect biology, and how ironic today that people talk a lot about ecology and they talk a lot about respecting the planet and being in harmony with nature, (laughs) then you have babies. Hmm? That's what it means to be in harmony with nature. That sex becomes procreative. But the modern society, they want to talk about being in harmony with nature, but they don't want to do any sacrifice for anything. Ever. Which, by the way, is heavy tamagun. Let me enjoy without sacrifice. Even rajagun is let me, ha- let me do sacrifice. So this because, nitya yagya pratistitam, you find God where there's sacrifice. So Krishna has arranged, okay, you want to enjoy sex separately from me, all right, but you're going to have to also sacrifice. Fascinating. Then Krishna says, I am the butter and fire in sacrifice. I am the butter and the fire in sacrifice. And we talked about this verse yesterday. The butter in the fire of sacrifice. So sex is meant to be a sacrifice which has a butter and a fire. Sacrifice involves butter and fire. And that is what sex is meant to be, a sacrifice. And again from that purport, matter dovetailed for the cause of the absolute truth regains its spiritual quality. Krishna consciousness is a process of converting the illusory consciousness into Brahman or the Supreme. So we're going to take this material lust and by connecting it with procreation, We're going to make it a sacrifice where we meditate on the butter and the fire of the sacrifice of being God. Well, let's look a little bit at what do we mean by this sexual energy? What's involved with sexual energy? What are we sacrificing? This is going to be very important when we look at two specific ways of using this sacrifice in such a way that we become purified. So sex involves connection. Hmm? Connection between the man and the woman, connection between the man, woman, and the child. It involves pleasure, 
It involves creation. It involves life itself. And it involves vitality, energy, enthusiasm. Hmm? And this, for anyone who doesn't believe me, so here we have a little... You notice this presentation is very quote-heavy. Yeah, there's a very good reason for that. So here's some evidence that uh, virya or energy is identified with sexuality. All right, so this is the principle. The principle is that the way we deal with the material part of our lust that has not yet been transformed while we are transforming it is that we offer it in sacrifice. Path one. Option number one for offering the butter and the fire of this energy of sex, connection, pleasure, life, vitality, energy, creation in sacrifice. First, we're going to look at renounced life. People sometimes think that renunciates have killed their sexual desire. Is that possible? No, it cannot be killed. Do you think that everyone in the renounced order has 100% transformed their lust into love? Do you think that 100% of the people in the renounced orders have already 100% transformed their lust into love? No. That means that people in the renounced orders, brahmacharis, banaprastas, and sannyasis, have still some material lust. Is that logical? Thank you. Can it be killed? Then they must be doing something with it. So in Ayurveda, it's explained that biologically, biologically, the sexual energy in the body gradually becomes finer and finer and nourishes the body and is responsible for the body's vitality and energy and effulgence, which Srila Prabhupada talks about occasionally for any of you who've studied Ayurveda. So on a, on a physiological level, as well as on a psychological level, if the sexual energy is not used in a gross way, it's meant to nourish the body and produce both ojas and tejas. So this means some effulgence, luster, and power. And those in the renounced order are meant to take that energy and bring it to the brain. They're meant to bring it up. They're meant to bring that energy up. They're meant to offer the butter into the fire of sacrifice of their own body. It is said that those in the renounced order should wear garments the color of fire. They are supposed to be a walking sacrifice. The brahmacharis, the vanaprastas, the sannyasis, they are supposed to embody the sacrifice. And the butter of sexuality, they are supposed to pour into the fire of their own sacrifice and nourish their own mind and their own intellect. 
When butter is put on fire, it becomes ghee. So the persons in the renounced order, they take this butter into the fire of sacrifice and they produce ghee. What kind of ghee are the renunciates supposed to be producing? They're supposed to see the world as their family. When one goes in the renounced order, one is not supposed to narrow one's interests. It's not that one gives up family or never takes on a family because one is just selfish. In the modern day, people do not marry because they are selfish. Right? Out in the world, people don't marry so they can have a job and keep all the money for themselves. And themselves or their dog. You know. And just keep some boyfriend, girlfriend that they don't have to maintain and do any sacrifice for. That is not a renounced order. The renounced order is the responsibility that an ordinary person takes for two or three or even ten or fifteen children. You're taking for the world. You're taking the responsibility to educate the world, to train the world, to take care of the world, to love the world. That same creative energy the householder is using to have children, you're using to make the world your children. And that energy also being brought to the brain is meant to be engaged in study and philosophy. And creativity. The renunciate is meant to have to think about creative main ways and means, like Prabhu was talking about brain taxation. The renunciate is meant to be taxing their brains. How can I preach this Hare Krishna movement? How can I expand the Krishna consciousness movement? And because they're not using that energy in other ways, they should have a tremendous amount of energy to use for that purpose. So the renunciate is taking whatever remains of the material sexual energy and they're bringing it up, both physiologically and uh, both literally and figuratively, up to the brain, to the heart, to give to the world. All right, now looking specifically at married life. This is a little simpler at least simpler to understand, not necessarily simpler to execute. So again, if you connect sex with children, it's, a, it's connected with responsibility and yajna. And of course, the marriage itself is a yajna. That you don't just take energy. You don't just take, if you're a man, female energy, if you're a woman, male energy from someone else. But you're giving. The woman's giving to the husband. The husband's giving to the wife. They're caring for each other. Hmm? And Prabhupada says wonderful thing that the householders, of course, who can have gross sexual uh, intercourse, that in that activity they can actually see Krishna. If they're offering that as a sacrifice to Krishna, remember it's supposed to be a sacrifice, then one can literally see Krishna. Just like Day Prabhu uh, yesterday morning he talked about one time he was chanting and he saw Krishna so it's amazing when the householders use that in Krishna's service as sacrifice they can see Krishna and Srila Prabhupada is comparing uh, sex within the Grahasta ashram for Krishna's benefit to produce wonderful children for the benefit of the world he says this is just like the offering of prasadam is a yagya like the offering for some? You know, we offer Krishna nice food and then we get to eat nice food. 
So the householders who were trying to produce high-class population for the good of the world, they offer that to Krishna and they also enjoy. The householders get to enjoy sexual life physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Just like when we're dancing in the temple, we're enjoying physically dancing and we're enjoying spiritually. We're eating prasadam, we're enjoying physically, we're enjoying emotionally, and we're also enjoying spiritually. Just like offering prasadam. And of course, not only do the householders use that sacrifice in a very gross physical way, but also on an emotional level. So as Krishna says to Rukmini, we householders like to enjoy the joking talks between each other. So the householders also get to enjoy this energy on the subtle platform between each other, but offered again as a sacrifice to Krishna, that I'm taking care of this wife, I'm taking care of this husband, to please Krishna. And therefore it said in the Bhagavatam, the reciprocation of service and love between husband and wife is the ideal of householder life. And we're going to look a little bit particularly about this fire and butter of sacrifice again. So as you know, Srila Prabhupada talks about uh, that the man is like the butter and the woman is like the fire, yes? Now, of course, if you just stick butter on fire, it makes a mess. Correct? If you just took a bunch of butter and stick it on the fire, you just have a big mess all over the place. So if you want to make ghee, what do you have to have? You have to have a pot. You have to have a pot that you put the butter in and then you put that pot on the fire and you make yeast. So this pot is marriage. This pot is marriage. And, and the way it seems to work is that uh, who do you think is more attracted to whom? You think men are more attracted to women or women are more attracted to men? What do you think? Men are much more attracted to women. For sure. For sure. That Well, what happens is the men are, are, are very attracted to women. And they're even attracted to women from a distance. That women are not like that. And the men are, that, that we're, just, we're just not. So the men are attracted to, you know, from a long way away. <gasps> a woman. <laughs> yeah. And, and women are like that. Women are slower. Women, women are slower. And they're, they're much more attracted by somebody saying, you know, I love you, I'm going to take care of you all the time. I, I once read about this, um, this con artist who seduced many, many women because what he would do is on the first date he would take them to furniture stores. <laughs> and he would say, wouldn't that be a nice couch to have in a living room? And she'd go, oh. <laughs> so because the women are slower and the women are, are not are not so attracted like that from a distance. Uh, the women have much more of an ability than a man to say no. Now, that makes a lot of sense because the women are the ones who have the babies, right? So there's a big consequence for a woman if, if she has a relationship with an improper man. She really suffers, yes? This is, now it's going on a lot today. I know in America in 1960, there was 4% of children born outside of marriage. Now it's 40 so naturally, biologically, psychologically, if, if, if nature is respected, which in modern society it is not, but if nature is respected, women have a great ability to say no. And they need that 
because otherwise they're really going to be in trouble. They need to say, no, you marry me first. And the men want them so badly, they say, okay. (laughs) Now, that only works if you link sex with reproduction. If you break that link, the women don't have a reason to say no anymore. If you break that link and you try to break women's natural modesty and shyness, then the whole thing breaks down. Which is, again, what's happening in the outside world. It's just all falling apart. But if you left things the way that Krishna has designed them, then everyone is pushed towards dharma. Everyone is pushed towards sacrifice. It's actually the women who push the men towards sacrifice. Because there's some heavy consequences for the women. So again, Krishna's just so clever in how he's worked this whole thing out. Yes. So then you have ghee. Then you have the ghee of household life. So this is pretty simple. What's the ghee of household life? Children. Right? The ghee of the renounced order is preaching, helping the world, study, creating more and more means of bringing Krishna consciousness to the world, and the ghee of household life is the children. And hopefully nice children. <laughs> and another ghee of household life is again this reciprocation of service and love between the man and the woman, which makes society in general very peaceful and happy. So if in, if in each family in the world there's this loving reciprocation, there's this idea that our emotional relationship is meant to be offered as a sacrifice to God, that this combination of butter and fire is meant to produce this beautiful ghee to be offered to Krishna, then just imagine how nice the world would be. Wouldn't it be a nice world? By the way, Krishna's interested in it being a happy world. Please don't think that Krishna's up there saying, let me see them suffer, and then they'll know they should serve me. That's not, it's not, I mean, who would want to go serve somebody like that? So Krishna says in the third chapter of Bhagavad Gita that if you offer sacrifice, you'll be happy in this life, and you'll achieve liberation. Everybody's heard in that verse? When the whole world is Krishna conscious, it's a nice world. In former ages, when everybody was Krishna conscious and everyone was engaged in sacrifice for Krishna, you didn't even have to do agriculture. You know, we talk about farms and doing agriculture, and you didn't even have to do agriculture. The earth just gave everything without even any, any effort on anyone's part. In the beginning of Satya Yuga, no one even had to have a livelihood. They could just sit and meditate and chant all day. Because the earth was just providing. The weather was nice all over the earth. That's what Krishna wants for us, but when we refuse to engage in yajna, then what to do? Hmm? And of course, the other ghee of householder life is wealth. And the householders are meant to provide fortune and wealth. The householders are meant to provide good population and honest wealth. So not only to make money for their own family and their own maintenance, but to provide wealth for the world. So that's the Shastric explanation. And now I'm going to give, if you find it helpful, Ormila's analogy. This is just my own personal analogy. Everything else was from the Shastra. This is from me, so you can throw it away if you like. But if you find it helpful, you can use it. So arms are nice. Yes, everybody likes their arm? Nice arm, yes? Okay. So when you break your arm, then it's not so nice anymore. So the functioning arm is like our love for Krishna, and a broken arm is like lust. 
And if you want to fix your arm, what do you need? You need to put it in a plaster, right? That's the cure. But you know, if you have a really bad break, any of you who are in medicine, you know that if you have a really bad break, that painkillers will speed the healing. Did you know that? And many, many years ago, I, I got in a car accident. And uh, a while after that, I saw an osteopath. And she said, what happens when you get in some kind of an accident is all the muscles tense up to protect your body. She said, especially around your spine, to protect your spine. All the muscles become like steel. And the problem is they sometimes kind of stay like that. They don't relax. They don't know, now the accident's over. You know, now you can relax. So when we get some kind of injury, sometimes our response to the injury causes some problems additionally. And painkillers given at the beginning of an injury when there's severe pain will relax everything and then the blood can flow and the limb can flow and things will heal better. Now, will painkillers heal a broken arm? No. In fact, if you only give painkillers and you don't give a cast, the broken arm will probably get worse because you won't feel anything and you'll re-damage it. Right? I knew of a case once where someone had a little hairline fracture. They didn't know the arm was broken and they kept using it, and they ended up damaging it more. So our real cure to turn the lust back into love is bhakti, which is like the caste. That's the real cure. But especially in the beginning, when we still have a lot of lust, we may need a painkiller. And there's basically two kinds of painkillers. There's the grahasta painkiller, and then there's the renunciate painkiller. Some people are allergic to the grahasta painkiller, and some people are allergic to the renunciate painkiller. <laughs> but both of, them, both of them are external. We were just reading that actually yesterday from Bhakti Sinanta, that whether you're renunciate or whether you're grahasta is both external. It, it's still within Varnashram. It's not that the renounced orders are spiritual and the house orders are material. They're really two different external material ways of dealing with the same problem. All right, and now we're going to summarize because good teachers summarize. Yes, Krishna summarizes. Krishna does Kaviraj summarizes. Sukadeva Goswami summarizes. We're going to do that. So the desire for pleasure is part of the soul. It's inherent. It's inherent in the spiritual form. It's inherent in the nature of spirit. Sexual energy, sexual desire is part of our original spiritual eternal nature. And we find satisfaction by uniting Krishna with his pleasure energy. That is how we feel unlimited, ever-increasing, eternal, constant, variegated satisfaction of this energy. And therefore, we cannot kill it. And if we try to kill it, we'll either become angry or hard-hearted or we'll fall down or some combination of those three. When we want to turn... When lust, love turns into lust... When we misuse our independence and we try to enjoy this energy separately from Krishna. And we try to kidnap Sita from Ram and then it comes out in some impure form. It manifests a gross body and we try to enjoy this energy in a gross body which is embarrassing and twisted and disgusting and entangling and so forth and so on. When we want to turn it back into love, the real cure is that we go back to what we should be doing. And we try to please Krishna. We try to unite Krishna with his pleasure energy. And this is what we are doing when we are chanting Hare Krishna. We are not just saying some sounds. We are not just doing a ritual. 
you know, we are trying to unite Krishna with his pleasure energy. I, I remember talking about this one time in, in Slovakia. And afterwards, a devotee told me that he had really been upset with the fact that Ram banished Sita to the forest. And he said, after hearing this, that when he was chanting, he was really meditating on how he was bringing Sita and Ram back together, dancing on his tongue, and he was feeling incredible ecstasy. I remember one time when I was in Germany at a big festival, there was one um, American man who was just touring through Germany, and he stopped by at the temple his first time at a temple. And he was there for a few days, and he said, I think I'm going to try chanting. And he took some beads and he went out on the property, he came back after about a half an hour, and he said, oh, this should be a controlled substance. So if one is chanting properly, then one is uniting Krishna with his pleasure energy. And also serving Mahaprabhu's mission is uniting Krishna with his pleasure energy. Then how do we engage our sexuality while we're in the generally gradual process of turning our lust back into love? Uh, we put butter on the fire of sacrifice to make ghee in the renounced ashram. That means expanding the family through preaching and using the creative, connecting, pleasure energy in study and meditation and the mission. And for the householders, butter on the fire makes ghee of good children. Using our occupation for the Lord, producing honest wealth for the Lord, and in the sweet relationship between husband and wife. So this is our amazing, incredible Gaudiya Vaishnava philosophy. Do we find this anyplace else? Is there any other philosophy, is there any other religion that provides this understanding? So, Srila Prabhupada Ki Jai. Thank you. Hare Krishna.